We know our theme <clears throat> for this year is a journey of faith. And as I've said to you many times, we're just walking through this year exploring different facets of faith. And so for the fall of this year, our theme has been about our beliefs. What, what do you believe? And we're cultivating a worldview and then taking that worldview and using it as a lens through which we view reality. And we're trying to answer some a series of, of questions, if you will. What do you believe about these various topics? And we've talked about uh, numerous topics already. And so today's uh, question is, what do you believe about qualifications for ministry in the local church? Because it's, it's something that all churches need to address and think about as they have ministers who lead them and as they call ministers to their congregation. So we're going to, it's not an exhaustive conversation this morning. There are numerous passages in the New Testament that address this, but we're going to look at one that's probably the most familiar to you. And it's found in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul is, is addressing uh, this very topic with Timothy. Timothy is the lead pastor, we believe, of the church at Ephesus, which meant it was a series of house churches that he oversaw. And there were questions about uh, who is, who's um, qualified to lead in these ministry positions. So let's look at that text and we'll have this conversation this morning. So Paul says this, here is a trustworthy saying, 1 Timothy 3 verse one. Here's a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer, the Greek word there is episkopos, desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, Self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, <clears throat> sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons, in the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who've served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> now let me remind you as we begin this conversation this morning, that uh, I have a worldview and my worldview helps guide me in my understanding of all of this. So for me, it's a very personal story. My call to ministry, uh, I can go back to my junior year in college is really when it began to materialize for me. Cindy and I were uh, in college and we were both majoring in sciences. I was in the pre-med program and, and Cindy was in the physical therapy uh, preparation. 
and uh, she was applying to physical therapy school. Her mother was a nurse, and so she had uh, been uh, immersed in that world for most of her life. We both were at home in the sciences. But then in our, our junior year in college, um, I began to just sense this, this profound movement of God in my life. And I began to pray and seek God's counsel. And, and I sensed that God was calling me into some kind of, of ministry. It's not something I'd really entertained before. Uh, I thought that uh, uh, actually because of Cindy and I in our direction that she would end up in physical therapy. I would end up in med school. We would serve the Lord well. Uh, as, a, as a couple in the church. But as I began to pray and, and think through it, I just sensed that there was, a, there was a call on my life. And so I sought counsel, spiritual counsel from leaders in my church. People had known me my whole life and then ultimately uh, our pastor. It was quite fascinating, those conversations, because as I began to share this sense of calling with the leaders in my church, they began to say things like this to me. Well, you know, Dennis, we've known it for a long time. We've just been waiting on you to accept it. I heard that over and over. Not one of them had ever mentioned it to me, but it had been a matter of, of prayer and living in community together. Even my own parents said that to me, that we felt like this was a calling in your life. So Cindy and I, eventually, we shared this conversation and then Cindy shared with me that she felt like she had been called to the ministry since she was a nine-year-old girl in GAs and that she believed God was gonna use her in missions somehow, even if she went on to be a physical therapist. The deep calling in her life, independently of me, was a call to ministry. And so once we made that decision together, we shared it with our church, and it began a long journey for us. It led us to, uh, to uh, explore the opportunities for education where I was from, uh, whenever you made this decision, you moved to New Orleans and went to seminary. That's where everybody went that, that led our church. But I had a Sunday school teacher uh, in my college ministry at our church who, who was determined to encourage Cindy and I to go to Southwestern Seminary, not New Orleans. And so he made arrangements for us to visit Fort Worth and drove us to Fort Worth in July of 1980. Some of you remember that, that summer. <clears throat> we left our car parked at the seminary for three days because they took us everywhere and when we came back to leave, it had sunk down in the asphalt about three inches. <clears throat> and I thought, man, you, you gotta be tough to live in Texas is what it looked to me like. Um, but for some reason, <clears throat> we felt at home at Southwestern. And so that's where we came. And so we graduated the next year, got married, moved here, and that's where I did my Master of Divinity and my PhD there. Um, we've pastored six churches uh, in this journey. And of course, Cindy has lived out her calling to missions, developing mission vision for our churches, and now serves at Restore Hope. And so <clears throat> for, <clears throat> for 38 years, we've served the local church. And, and it really has been the, the highest honor in my life to do that, to sense that call of God and to serve the church in ministry. Uh, I've learned a lot about ministry in the local church and the good news is I'm still learning about ministry in the local church. And so as I said, my, my worldview 
is that ultimate revelation is, I mean, ultimate truth, rather, is found in the revelation of God himself. And God has revealed himself through his world and through his word and through the word, the Lord Jesus, through his spirit, and also through the community of faith known as the church. So for me, when I think about what it means to be qualified to be in ministry, then I look at the authority that's been put in place to guide me in that understanding. And that authority is the word of God. And so if we want to know what the requirements are, what the qualifications are, when someone feels called and then they begin to, to engage in the opportunity to serve in the local church, well, we look at what the scripture has to say. And so let me just make a couple of preliminary points about it. First of all, um, each individual believer in the local church is gifted by the Holy Spirit for service uh, and ministry. So in other words, when you talk about serving the local church, it's not just those of us who are in vocational ministry, it's all of us, every one of us. The Bible teaches that. Once again, it's the authority of the scripture. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7 says, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit of God is given for the common good. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, he distributes these gifts to each one. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 27, you're 12, 27, you're you're the body of Christ. Each one of you is a part of it. So everybody here has been gifted by the Spirit of God to serve in the local church. So Regardless of what you do for a living, per se, once you become a believer, you are spiritually empowered, uniquely gifted, supernaturally by the Spirit of God to serve in ministry in the church. However, the New Testament indicates a leadership structure that's important for local churches. So as the, as the church, when you're looking at the New Testament, the church in the first century is brand new. It's, it's, it's just beginning And so one of the questions is, how is it supposed to function? How do these churches engage in ministry? Naturally, the the model that's in place for those early leaders was the the synagogue. These these bodies of, of Jewish believers who were gathered for community and for instruction and for worship. Now, now you know that if you were a Jew in the first century, Jerusalem was home base. Everybody knew that. But the Jews lived, all, there were more Jews living outside the, the, the Israel than living inside of Israel, just like today. And so the Jews learned to worship together in these small gatherings known as synagogues. Well, they had an organizational structure. They had a liturgy. They had, uh, they had worship practices. So the early church was primarily, con, um, it was uh, comprised of Jewish believers, and so they adopted that model. The Apostle Paul, primarily in the New Testament, helps us understand the structure that was beginning to emerge. So when you read the New Testament, you'll you'll hear words like this, overseers, or elders, or shepherds, or sometimes that word would be translated pastors, deacons, prophets, apostles. All of those titles are are mentioned in, in the New Testament, primarily by Paul. They all have certain connotations. And here's what's interesting. When you look at the, at the, at the text, you'll discover that, that there are men and women serving alongside one another in some of these strategic roles. Now, granted, it was a patriarchal society, and yet at the same time, we have examples, we have glimpses, if you will, of how God is going to bring all of this about, how these churches are going to function together. So you have, for example, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, 
and he sees that the Spirit of God has been given and has fallen upon, upon the people of God and the church is going to emerge out of that. Peter says this prophecy that we've, that we've longed for that comes from the book of Joel where God pours out his spirit on mankind has taken place right here in front of us. And the Bible says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. I'm gonna pour out my spirit on your service, men and women. In, in Acts 18, um, we, we find this, this uh, conversation between Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. It has to do with theology and Priscilla and Aquila take this man aside and improve and correct his theology about Jesus. Interestingly enough, in Romans 16, verse 7, Paul refers to Junia, a woman, as an apostle, which is an interesting designation, particularly with our understanding of, of what apostolic witness and authority was. In Romans 16, verse 1, Paul commends Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Cancrea. And it's interesting, he refers to her as a deacon, not a deaconess, but a deacon. Acts 23, verse 9, Philip has four daughters. All the daughters are prophets. And then you have this text, you have this, this, uh, this text that we just read a moment ago in, in 1 Timothy 3 where Paul talks about the, uh, the overseer, talks about the deacon. And if you'll just look back at this text, he says, Here, here's the qualifications for overseers. Then he says, verse 8, likewise, in the same way deacons. Then verse 11, likewise, in the same way, the Greek word is gune, women. Now, we've, we've struggled with translating that because there was a time in history where it seemed like the, the understanding was that this was a reference to the deacon's wives. So actually some translations will even say that often in italics to let you know that's not actually in the text. It's just the word women. Well, which women? Why are these women having to, to be qualified for anything? What role are they supposed to play? And if you're going to talk about deacon's wives, why don't you talk about overseer's wives? You think you'd, the overseer's wives would be more valuable in terms of leadership structure than the deacon's wives. With all due respect to deacons, but you hear what I'm saying? In other words, if you're going to talk about somebody's wives, you would think you would talk about the overseer's wives. But he just says, likewise, women. Well, what women? Well, a lot of that just depends on, on interpretive strategy and trying to understand what's underneath this text and what is God is saying. But here's the point. God, in the New Testament, is gifting men and women to serve alongside each other in these local expressions of church. Now, you'll have to come to grips with your own belief about the roles and assignments to either one of them, but the bottom line is there's a picture, if you will, of people serving the Lord in leadership in these churches, and God is gifting them to do it. So, with that said, let's talk about what it means to be qualified for ministry. Who really is qualified to serve in ministry in the local church? Well, I'm not going to do an exhaustive survey. I'm just going to run through it real quickly just for us to have something to, to talk about and think about and for you to be thoughtful about. So here's, how, here's what I would say. First of all, I would say they're to be spiritually gifted and called. That's really where this whole thing begins. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, if anybody aspires to be an overseer, if they have a desire to be an overseer, where does that desire come from? Well, I would say it originates with the calling of God in a person's life. That that's really where it happens. I know that's my story. That's what happened to me. I didn't, I didn't even think about it. I had great respect for pastors. I grew up in the church, and my parents had great respect for our pastors. You know, my daddy would not let you talk about the preacher in our house unless you were saying something complimentary. Now, that caused a little bit of controversy sometimes between my mom and my dad because my mom was a little quicker to talk about the preacher than my dad was. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> anyway... Um, but I can remember hearing my dad say things about that and his response to it. 
Uh, my dad was very protective, and that was before he had three boys that ended up being preachers. He was just, that's just my daddy's view. That's how it was at our house. Point was, though that sense of calling, that deep desire in the heart, that deep desire in the soul to be called the ministry. Well, the New Testament has evidence of people set apart. Acts 13, verse 2, the Spirit of God says, set apart, Saul and Barnabas. Uh, what about the story of John the Baptist? John the Baptist is set apart from the very beginning. The apostle Paul called on the road to Damascus. Uh, the apostles called by Jesus. I mean, there are just numerous examples of these people who are called by God to serve the local church. Here's what I believe about that. When God calls, he equips. When God calls people, he then equips them spiritually to lead the church. And then the church receives them. And then begins this beautiful relationship where the church embraces these leaders, these qualified ministers, and they live in this, this symbiotic relationship. In fact, Paul says it's the church's job to support them. Sounds a little self-serving for me to say that to you as a preacher, but I'm not always gonna be your preacher. That's just how the church works. In, in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 14, Paul says, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. In other words, these folks that are in vocational ministry should give full time and energy and attention to ministry itself. So in those earliest days, 1 Timothy 5, if you'll flip over a couple pages here in 1 Timothy, Paul will say, don't muzzle the ox. He'll say, the, the worker deserves his wages. There's this, there's this beautiful dynamic partnership between the called and the people of God. So the called are spiritually gifted by God. Now here's, here's the qualifications for each one of them. They're to be personally responsible. That's, what I, that's how I would interpret 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The, the minister in your church, the ministers who serve your church, the people that are called by God to come live among you and serve among you. Well, well look at how they're described above reproach. They're, they're to have a certain temperament. They're, they're not to be new converts. They're supposed to be spiritually mature people. Their actions, their behaviors, should be circumspect. They're, they're the kind of people that connect who they are with how they choose to live. They're not quick-tempered. If you go to Titus 1, the, once you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, then go Titus 1, Paul talks about these elders, these leaders. Paul says they're supposed to be uh, upright. They're to be holy. They're to be disciplined. They're personally responsible people. Now, here's what's interesting. When, when these ministers come and serve in these local churches, they're gonna serve alongside lay leaders. One set of lay leaders will be the deacons. And so in this text, in 1 Timothy 3, he describes the deacons. So these deacons and these ministers are to live together in community with one another. And these deacons also are to be responsible people. Notice what he says in verse eight. They're to be worthy of respect. They're to be sincere, godly people. These deacons, these leaders in the church, they're, they're supposed to work alongside with the ministers to carry out the gospel. And then these women, whoever these women are supposed to be, women leaders in the church, was Paul talking about women deacons? Well, there's some evidence of that in the New Testament. There's certainly evidence of it in the early church. Uh, Pliny the Younger, when he was, he was writing a letter to Trajan, who was the emperor in Rome in AD 112, he had captured two deaconesses in Bithynia. And he didn't know what to do with them because they wouldn't pay homage to the Roman gods. And so you go all the way back to AD 112 and deaconesses were already mentioned in the churches in Asia Minor. Well, in other words, these, these men and women who are serving in leadership in the church, they're also to be responsible people, but they work with ministers who are personally responsible. Now, you know, that means that the, the ministers aren't to be perfect. That's not the point. That none of them are going to be perfect. 
but they're to be spiritually mature people. And so when, when we're considering ministers to come serve in this church, that's one of the first things we look at is their maturity spiritually because these are going to be spiritual people. The job is primarily spiritual. I don't care what the role is in the church. It doesn't matter the area that you serve in. Your primary responsibility is to be a spiritual mature person. You can't be someone who's a novice, someone who doesn't have a deep understanding and a rich understanding of what it means to follow Christ. Now that leads to the second thing that I would say though about these ministers, they're to be professionally capable though. I want you to notice Paul says just something just, it's, it's, it, you, you think about it, it's almost like a castaway line, you can just read right past it, but he says able to teach. In other words, if, if you're going to play this role of guiding the congregation, then you should have the gifts and the skills that match the responsibility you have in the church as a minister. And so ministers are supposed to be uh, professionally capable people. In other words, their work should be connected to their giftedness, to their calling of God in their lives, whatever it might be. I would tell you, we've spent some time in, in the last little while as a staff just talking through the sense of calling that we all have. And we've had conversations with ministers on our staff just discussing the calling of God in our lives. What is, what is God leading us to? What do we feel called to? What do we feel compelled to do? The passions that drive us, the ways that, that we invest ourselves in ministry. And are you professionally capable enough to live out that calling? You know, one of the things that, that, that's required of us oftentimes is to receive the education we need, but you also just need practical experience in the life of the local church. That's, that's one of the ways you test your giftedness and make sure that the church embraces your capabilities. And it's a part of the job of the minister to be responsible for their own professional capability. But then one that's incredibly important to me, ministers need to be relationally mature. Paul describes a minister in this text, in my opinion, who is relationally mature. Paul says in your family, you're faithful. You're faithful to your wife. You're faithful to, I would say, ultimately later, even if, 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 the, if, he, if he's referring to women leaders, they're to be faithful to their husbands. The bottom line is faithful to your family, to your children. You're to be godly people. Verse seven, outsiders. You got a great relationship with people who are outside the church. In other words, the church is to be led by people who are healthy relationally, people who care about people, people who are compassionate. Ministers have to have a heart and desire for people. I would tell you the longer I've been in ministry, the deeper my concern and my compassion has become for people because you learn about people. You know, Cindy and I tell young ministers all the time, you need to have the heart of a shepherd and the skin of a crocodile. That's how you manage your way in ministry, you know? Because you, if you're thin-skinned, if, if you let people get under your skin, you're gonna be miserable in ministry. You just are. You're not, you're not gonna be mature enough to handle ministry. You've gotta be relationally strong. You've gotta be relationally healthy. You've gotta have good, strong relationships. Think about how many ministries have been damaged by bad relationships. Think about ministers who've been unfaithful to their families and how damaging that is. We could name some famous ones right now, couldn't we? who've been unfaithful to their families. And what does that do? People look at it and go, man, I thought, I thought he was a man of God. Well, men of God are men. Women of God are women. And guess what they're capable of? Turns out pretty much anything. <clears throat> and so 
You gotta have good, strong relationships, be relationally healthy. You've gotta learn how to care and love for the, the people of God. And what I would tell you is in ministry, I've been doing it a long time. Um, if, if it were easy, that would be awesome. And you know, in the, in, the, in the engagement of ministry, here's what happens to you over time. You just learn how to love and care for people. You learn how to see people the way God sees them. You learn how to be patient and compassionate. You learn that people are in very different life stages. You learn that there are people sometimes when they're angry about something, they're not really angry about that very thing. They're carrying anger about something else. And as a minister, instead of responding in kind to the anger, the minister is supposed to try to figure out what it is that's actually going on in the life of this person so that that can be addressed, so that they can be healthy and whole and godly and live that kind of life in their sphere of influence. It's not, ministers don't respond in kind. Ministers are guide and shepherd, be compassionate and be loving. Although it's tempting to respond in kind. Now come on y'all. <clears throat> Sure, you know, when something's going on and somebody's upset, it's easy to get upset right back at them. It's also easy to be upset all the time with God's people. If you wanna do that, I would encourage you to get out of this work and go do something else. Because relationships are so important. Being compassionate. You know, God has just put a deep love for people in me. I can't help myself. I just love people. I care about them. I care about what happens to them. And so I want to serve them. I want to see them flourish. I want, them to, I want to see them healthy. And I can promise you I certain, certainly want to see my people, the people God's given to me. I want, want you all to be healthy people. I want you to find your way in this old world. I want you to live out your passion and your calling. And I want to guide you and shepherd you in that direction. And I feel like that's a part of my responsibility. I think that's what Paul is saying. You want people to serve in your church who, are, who take relationships um, they take them seriously because they know how much they matter. I think also Paul mentions you've got to be doctrinally sound, though, if you're going to serve in ministry. Ministry is not for um, novices. The work's too important. M ministry is not for the theologically immature. <clears throat> now, as you start out when you're young in ministry, you've got to learn, obviously. But you've got to be a theologian. You've got to be somebody who takes all this seriously. Paul will tell, if, if you were to flip over to Titus, um, Titus 1, Paul will say, you've got to hold firmly to the trustworthy message and encourage others with sound doctrine. Titus 1 verse 9. You've got to be able to teach here in 1 Timothy 3. If you're going to be in ministry, I don't care what role you play. I don't care if you're in administration or how, however it is that you serve the church, you've gotta be a person who understands what the gospel is because the gospel is at the very heart of everything we do. The gospel is the core of who we are. You have to understand what it means to follow Jesus and his teachings and hold them tr to be true. You can't surrender the truth of the scripture and be effective in ministry, in my opinion. Now, you can surrender the truth of the scripture and be effective maybe in, in relationships with people, but it's more than just being in relationship with people. A part of the, my job to help you find your journey is to make sure you stay true to the gospel. And so that means I've gotta stay true to the gospel. And I can't surrender things just because they're uncomfortable. My worldview won't let me do that. Even though right now my culture is pushing me and trying to force me to surrender some things that I know are deeply held truths in the scripture. And what I need y'all to know is I'm not going to do it. And it's not because I'm mad about it. I'm just not gonna do it. Because one day I'm gonna stand before God. And God, you know, you know when James says, now don't teach. Don't teach or you're gonna have a stricter judgment. 
And so I know one day I'm going to stand before God and be held accountable, not just for how I live, but what I've taught. I remember telling my daddy that one day. My daddy was discussing with me his view about the end of time, and we could not have disagreed more radically. But you know what I loved about my daddy? He said, son, you know what I believe. I said, I know exactly what you believe, and I don't believe it anymore. You taught it to me, but I don't believe it. I said, but daddy, when I stand before Jesus, I'm not going to have to give an account of how well I understood what you believe. I've got to give an account for what I believe and what I teach. And you know what? To his credit, before he died, he ended up almost agreeing with me. Praise God. <laughs> almost. Um, anyway, I'm afraid right now he knows more than I know, but anyway. And then finally, I would say you've got to be ecclesiologically sound. Don't ever call anybody to serve your church who doesn't love the church. If they don't love the church, they don't belong in ministry in the local church. The church is at the heart of who we are. It's God's, it's God's, it's the home base. Jesus established the church. And so if you're engaged in ministry, you're called to the local church. Local churches, regardless of where you serve, even our people who serve us in other, in other areas need to have a heart for the local church. I remember I was having a conversation um, about a, a man who was being interviewed to be the head of a seminary and they asked me, they said, what do you believe about him? I said, here's what I believe about him. He's got fire in his belly for the local church. That's why I would love to see him lead that seminary. You want our seminaries to be led by people who love the local church. You want our denomination to be led by people who love the local church. Am I true, Charles? <clears throat> One of the reasons Dr. Wade was qualified to be the executive director of Texas Baptist, you know why? It's because he loved the local church. He didn't just love our denomination. I love our denomination. But the local church is what makes up our denomination. <laughs> it's local churches. So the calling, we gotta be ecclesiologically sound. If you, if you get a minute, read Colossians 1, 24 through 29. It's where Paul talks about his love for the church. So here's what I'd say. People that serve the local church, they need to be called, they need to be competent, they need to be compassionate, they need to be connected to Jesus. So years ago, when I was teaching at Truett Seminary, I taught for eight years at Truett Seminary, this is what I would tell our students. I'd tell them that you need to be called by God, you need to be competent, and uh, you, you need to be compassionate, and you need to, you need to be com connected to Jesus. I said, would to God that if you ever get fired, I hope you're always gonna get fired based on your competence. I don't want you to get fired because you're not called by God. I don't want you to get fired because you're not compassionate. And I don't want you to get fired because you're not connected to Jesus. Does that make sense? You would rather get fired for being incompetent or not being able to do the job you're asked to do. Incompetent, that's a harsh word, but y'all know what I mean. In other words, not being able to do the task in front of you. Not because you don't love the Lord. Not because you don't, you're not compassionate or called. You always need to keep that in front of you. You know, in my preaching Bible, I always keep these two little photos. And I have them with me this morning. And I keep them there because they remind me of something. The first one is Pope John Paul. And he's, he's seated in his chair. And the reason I carry this picture with me is because of the look of the people around him. Because you see, all these people who are looking at Pope John Paul believe he's a godly man. You know, and what I believe is, of all the things you should hope about me, you should hope I'm a godly man. And I hope and pray I never disappoint you in that. 
Because when, you, when you're a holy person and you disappoint people with your unholiness, it's incredibly disappointing, isn't it? And so I remind myself, the people of God look at their ministers a certain way and they should don't disappoint them, is what I would say to me and those of us who serve in ministry. The other photo I carry around is the photo of St. Dennis. He's a patron saint of Paris. You know his story? He was preaching and they took him on the outskirts of Paris and he was persecuted by a Roman emperor and they cut his head off. And the legend says he walked back into Paris holding his head, still preaching. So if you ever go to Notre Dame, the entrance to Notre Dame has all these statues in relief, beautiful statues. There's only one statue who has no head. That's St. Dennis. He actually has a head, he's holding it in his hand. So there's a statue of him standing next to all these leaders and he's the only one holding his head in his hands. Here's what I would say to that. You know, sometimes being in ministry requires a lot of sacrifice. It's cost people their lives. But second of all, you don't have to lose your head while you're doing it. <clears throat> He didn't really lose his, He's, he found it. He's just carrying it around now. So sometimes you find yourself in a situation when everybody around you is losing your head, losing their heads, the, the pastor and the ministers can't lose their heads. That's why I carry that around. In other words, God has called me to be in this ministry. It's a high honor. I didn't even ask for it, to be honest with you. It's, it's just what happened to me. And so what I wanna do is live into it well. And I wanna demonstrate before you all that I'm called by God that I am, I am compassionate when it comes to people, that I'm connected to Jesus, and I'm gonna do my best every day to stay competent as best I can. You know why? Because that's what you deserve. And I'm gonna do it without growing bitter. I'm gonna do it without losing my heart. I'm gonna stay connected to the Lord and stay connected to you, and I'm gonna be happy in well-doing because I believe the church deserves to be led by happy people. May it always be so. Let's pray together. <clears throat> well, Father, we, we love you, and we thank you for the privilege of serving the local church. Lord, I, I'm grateful. It's a high honor for me, and I thank you for the calling in my life. And I thank you that you, you gift people like us to give leadership to the local church. And Lord, it's, it's humbling, and I'm grateful for it. And I just pray that you'll continue to guide our church to find the right ministers and leaders who serve among us. Right now, we're actually looking for a couple of folks to serve us in our ministry to adults in college. And we wanna find the right people. We have some great ones already on our staff. And I thank you for each one of them. Thank you for their calling, for their, for their compassion, their passion for, uh, for ministry for this church. And I pray your blessings on us as we serve this church. May we honor you as we do it. And so Lord, we thank you, Lord, for allowing us to even be a part of a family like this one. And we ask God that you bless us as we serve you every day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together. I want to offer you an invitation. Maybe God's leading you to join our church. Put your life here. Maybe you're online and God's leading you to join us. You can, you can uh, respond to us there and we'd be happy to visit with you. You know, also another thing for us to do maybe today as a church is to pray for God to call more people. You know, Jesus told us to pray, to send laborers in the harvest. So maybe God's prompting your heart to pray. For someone maybe you know that might be sensing that call. Maybe you're the one sensing that call. Well, we'd love to visit with you about that. Uh, Katie, Kurt, me, we, other staff members here. We've been called to do this, and we'd be happy to visit with you about it. So if you need to respond publicly or privately, let's do that while we sing together, Aaron. Mm -hmm.